Why don't we start by you talking about the story of the book? So I've probably wanted to write a book since I was about eight or nine. You know, there's still um, little exercise books flitting around somewhere where, with my great opuses. <laughs> and, um, you know, so kind of left it a bit late in life. But I've always been a bit of a sort of closet writer, noting down my ideas and thoughts and all the rest of it, really more in sort of a collection of essays. And I had thought about, you know, writing about wild food before. But there isn't really any need for a, you know, yet another book on foraging. I mean, there's some excellent books out there, you know, both field guides um, and books with lots of recipes in and things like that. Um, so I kind of sort of shelved the idea. Anyway, one of the things that sort of happened, really, this goes back a couple of years to when we had Beast from the East. Because during Beast from the East, we were cut off in the countryside. And I live in central Scotland, in the sort of triangle formed by Edinburgh, Glasgow and Stirling. So it's a little bit of commuter belt. So it's, you know, rural, semi-rural, um, a lot of commuter towns. But we got completely cut off. And as a consequence, you know, the sh all the little village shops ran out of bread and milk and, you know, key essential items. And that hadn't happened for some time because a lot of the winters have actually been very mild due to climate change. Yeah. So um, it raised the question, well, how much food is in the system at any one time? Because the newspapers were talking about, well, we're just in time in computer ordering systems. There's only actually about three days of food in the system at any one time. And it occurred to me that, you know, if somebody took out the internet or part of the national grid around some of these very large distribution centers, that a lot of people might run out of food completely. And then, of course, next year we had um, Brexit and there were pictures on the news of tales of, you know, queues of lorries stretching back from Dover and a lot of discussion about whether or not European lorry drivers would be able to you know, bring food in and, you know, how dependent we were on the EU, particularly for fruit and vegetables. And so those same questions were going around in my head. And all the time that I've been teaching foraging, um, people have also always asked me, well, you know, this is all very well, but could you actually live on wild food for a year? And I'd at a stage where, you know, the kids have all grown up and left home. So you know, I don't have to pretend that I haven't put seaweed in everything anymore. And, you know, then going into coronavirus, you know, and again, there's like pasta shortages and loo paper shortages and this whole, these whole issues about food security. And so I thought, well, well now would be a really interesting time, you know, not to recreate some sort of um, paleolithic past. I wasn't going to be dressed up in my million years BC Raquel Welsh outfit with a spear. <laughs> and um, well, for those of you who are old, for those people who are old enough to remember that film. <laughs> um, but, you know, with the advantages of modern conveniences, you know, that I, you know, could drive to places, I wouldn't have to take a week or several weeks to walk to a new habitat. Um, you know, I've got the luxury of a freezer, a dehydrator, storage jars, you know, I doubt a lot of our ancestors had 
clipped up Gilner jars um, going, going back thousands of years. Um, you know, could, could I live off wild food? And I was, you know, in the, in the midst of preparing and probably thinking that I would start after the winter in the spring, the winter always being the most difficult bit. And it was that sort of balance, you know, you either spend a lot of time preparing and get through the winter or you dive in and just get the winter out of the way. And I think what spurred me to dive in and get winter out of the way was that, you know, as we were coming out of the coronavirus lockdown, I had this real hope that people who had suddenly rediscovered the countryside, because that was the only place they were allowed to go out to was for a walk. Um, and you'd see them in the lanes looking around, like, oh my goodness, look at all this nature. And with people having to think about, well, you know, where are these diseases come from? You know, what, what pressure are we putting on the globe where instead of it just being reports at a distance of wildfires and extinction of species and, you know, oceans rising and things like that, it was suddenly very close to us, that there would be change. And of course, by the end of the summer, it didn't feel like there'd been any change at all. And all the adverts started to happen for Black Friday. And Black Friday is kind of like the, the feast day, the high mass day of consumerism. And it just seemed like a really good day to just dive in and start. And then coincidentally, around that time, I was approached by a lovely lady, Claire Conrad, who is a literary agent. And she'd been reading some things I'd been writing online. And she said to me, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> so I sent her examples of some of the essays that I'd been writing. And um, she said, well, you know, they're, they're, they're great, but why don't you, you know, rethink them and write them as you go? You know, you're on this journey. Why don't you document the journey? through the wild food year um, and that was a really interesting process because it actually you know even some of the essays and thoughts that I'd written down before changed as the year went by you know I had to rethink things when I actually did it in reality can you give me an example so one of one example would be the fact that I thought that there would be a lot more carbohydrates I thought there'd be a lot more roots and, um, you know, I've been mainly vegetarian before, so I really wanted to try and do it with as little meat as possible. Yeah. Um, partly because that's the way I, you know, I just, you know, felt. Um, and I thought that my vegetarian diet was quite healthy, even though I'd put on a lot of weight, um, you know, over the last sort of 10 years in particular, 10, 15 years. And also because I, you know, don't have a hunting license with for a rifle or a shotgun. So I would have to trade, because I'd made a rule that I wasn't allowed to use money. I would have to trade or find, um, you know, either something or persuade somebody into giving me meat if that's what I needed. But I quickly realised that in actual fact in Scotland, there are very few routes um, to actually give you the, the the calories that you needed to get so through with with that um because i'm aware you've got much more marsh wind water up there than we have which is which is a 
a rooted thing, isn't it? But but it's not it's not sufficient. It's not you know that's not a serious potential staple. Um, marsh wound marsh wound wort tubes are great. You know they they're very they are very crunchy. They're very crispy. They are kind of like giant bean sprouts or something. But I would imagine that their calorific um, value is actually quite low. Because right. not as dense as dandelion and burdock, for instance, and those actually have quite a low calorie value. Yeah. Um, because they weren't, they haven't been bred to be these, you know, super sugary, fleshy roots that we get from, you know, modern, you know, mod more, more, more modern hybridization. And the other thing about marsh woundwort tubers is that most of the time they're growing amongst um, rushes and sedges and. They're difficult to harvest them in, in a big mat of things and they tend to sort of um put their tubers down under the roots of other large um you know grasses and things like that so it's very very time consuming to dig them out um you know where you have an area where you've where the grasses have been removed for some reason that they spread you know you can get them out pretty easily then i've seen them i've seen them on uh grown as a weed on farmland and I'm pretty sure what's going on there is that when the when the ground gets ploughed, because the, the tubers certainly aren't being harvested, so they'll be getting broken up and, you know, ending up with, well, there was quite a lot there, but I can, I can imagine if, if, there's, if there's not too much herbicide going down. Um, Yes, every every little part of a tuber that's broken up, like horseradish, will grow prolifically. Yeah, and and will colonise a bare space. Um, but where where I live, and you've got to remember that a lot of this year that I undertook was actually under under lockdown, so we weren't allowed to leave the county. You know, there was a you know large chunks of it you weren't allowed to go more than five miles from the house which posed difficulties, particularly in the early part of the year, where normally humans would have migrated down to the coast. Yeah. In that hungry gap where you would have, where we would have lived on seaweeds and shellfish until the land plant started to produce leafy growth again. Yes. So there were not as, not as many carbs as I, as I thought. Um, you know, really hazel, in Scotland, really hazelnuts as the only nut that grows prolifically as well, apart from acorns. You know, of course, you know, acorns were really great because you could wash, you know, wash out the, um, the flour and the starch, you know, wash out the tannins. And you used a lot of those. We did find some chestnut, but normally chestnut and walnut doesn't really grow in fruit this far north. But I was rather lucky to find two um, large sweet chestnut trees in a that rooted particularly well um and hazel hazelnuts were you know were, were great but you know you did have to travel quite some quite some distance to get the volume that you would need i you know i can imagine that for i've been talking on um online to one of the other members of the association of foragers who really wants to do this herself now as well and she was saying that, you know, but she's a vegetarian, so she wants to do it the vegetarian way. Um, but she lives in the Mediterranean, you know, which is great because you, you can get 
calories from plants all year round. You know, you're by the sea. Um, although she's not eating, I didn't ask if she was eating, not eating any fish or shellfish. Um, but she, you can, you probably, you know, she'll probably have to depend on protein on a lot of like wild peas or wild beans and wild grasses, wild wheats, and, um, but particularly peas and beans. It's, it's difficult to see how she's going to do it without, you know, even fish or shellfish. But certainly the Mediterranean would have been a much more hospitable place to have done this. And when you go back, of course, to prehistory, coming out of Africa, that's where our species spent the majority of time before, possibly due to crowding, hardier bands followed the animals and started to venture further north. But it's unlikely that any of the, you know, the northern tribes that penetrated to Scotland 12,000 years ago um, would, have, would have been following a vegetarian lifestyle. Well, no, it's highly unlikely. I mean, it does look like the further north you get, the more meat and fish people are eating. So they depend on the, on the uh, animals that they're eating to, to be uh, finding the carbs. Yeah, that's it. And it's interesting because we tend to, um, although we have a lot of diversity of foods, um, in the supermarket so you can get lots of foods from different countries and um, different types of vegetables these days certainly compared to the 70s at the same time what we don't really have is a real recognition of the fact that different types of body types that you've inherited as your sort of ancestral dna heritage may require different types of diet you know so countries have tended to do things like you know introduce the food pyramid um you know the, the government have this food pyramid which is sort of heavy on potatoes and bread and grains and you know then vegetables and meat and fats and in actual fact that would be a great winter diet but it doesn't actually suit most people most year round as you can see from the amount of you know obesity and diabetes that that there are um, whereas, you know, somebody whose heritage is in, is, is on the equator, um, you know, possibly they had ancestors who were eating fruits all year round and didn't need to eat um, much meat. Um, so we, we have these different ancestral heritages mm. that possibly haven't been truly explored. And I, you know, my, um, I did a DNA analysis and most of my heritage is Celtic and Scandinavian and Northwestern European. There's not, you know, a lot of a mix in there. I was, you know, it was really hoping to discover some genetic diversity, but very little. Um, and I, you know, when I followed this very Northern foraging diet that did include quite a high amount of protein, um, my, bo my body adapted really well to it. You know, I lost weight. I, I got back to being, you know, being wearing jeans that I haven't worn since my 20s. Um, but, um, you ended up feeling the lack of certain things, right? And, 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 and actually just, I mean, would you say you were craving for fat? Would you say your body was craving for fat? Because that was a bit of an issue, wasn't it, with the lack yeah. of fat? wild sources of oil and fat so the, 
yes, there were times along the way when I hadn't got the balance right or the, the right things there. So I was never in any danger of starving because, you know, I'd got a lot of mushrooms frozen in the freezer and a lot of dried seaweeds. And as long as you've got dried seaweed and dried mushrooms, you know, you can make soup. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be something to eat. But sometimes it took, um, you know, it took a while before I always got the balance right. And there were two things that happened. So one was that I found that the summer was much more difficult than I expected it to be. I'd actually taken most of the things that I'd saved up, divided them into six boxes and labeled them December through to May. And I don't know what I thought was going to happen after I'd finished May's rations. May's rations. You know, so these formed the sort of base of if there was nothing fresh, I could fall back on these, these particular rations. Um, so there wasn't, you know, they were quite, they weren't particularly large boxes, they were actually quite small boxes, but it was comforting psychologically to know that there was something in the box when you were halfway through the month and, you know, you know, ended up with 48 days of continuous snow during the winter. Um, but when it came to the summer, of course, the plants, you know, they've put their energy, they've taken their energy from the tubers and roots that where it's stored in the winter and they put it into all these fresh green leaves in the spring which tastes so amazing and there's you know you, the the difference going from a heavy winter diet into that fresh green spring diet was just wonderful and then when you get into the summer the plants start to put their energy into doing flowers and there is not a lot of nutrition and calories just in flowers man cannot live on flowers alone although they you know, enliven the soul when you see them in a salad. And the wild fruits that eventually do follow that, you know, wild strawberries, wild raspberries, blaeberries, you know, the, the bilberries, the common, you know, the common ancestor of the blueberry, they're tiny, you know, they're pretty small. So what I realized is that in the summer, you have to either go back to the coast and fish and I learned to fish for mackerel. Um, or you have to end up following, the, you know, the herds, whether they're herds of deer or later on people were herding sheep and goats up the mountains to the higher mountain pastures where the grasses are greener and lusher because it's a lot cooler. And so in that sort of change between foraging and farming, um, you know, a lot of people would, for instance, have gone up the mountain for the whole summer and lived on, you know, cheese, you know, put, put a lot of cheese aside and would still be eating lots and lots of vegetables and some dairy products. Um, I ended up having to go back down to the coast and learning to fish and that sorted everything out great. You know, and the, the only reason that really I had days where the fats became an issue and made me feel really tired and um, undernourished my hair became dry and things were because because I have a fixed home and a job and you know didn't have the luxury of just being able to decamp to the the coast for the entire summer mm. that it was then you know there were then times without but when I did go on holiday and go fishing you know I took a smoker with me and preserved you know went went fishing every day and preserved as much as I could to last when I got back and that certainly sorted the problems out because we would have moved we would have had to have moved around to follow yeah. the boobs and of course you're you're fishing for mackerel so so that 
that uh, went some way towards meeting your fat need because mackerel is such an oily fish, right? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, um, in between these fresh green leaves and the uh, and the flowers and then the fruit, um, earlier a little bit earlier on, um, I would have thought there's quite a bit of carbohydrate in in the um, in the stems. I mean, I haven't. I haven't done the experiment really to see just how much you could gather, but there's things, there's things like, um, well, burdock and hogweed and some uh, cow parsley. They've certainly got, you know, they've certainly got sugars in the stems. Mm. I, you know, last year, last year, I, and, and I've, and I didn't even get started on it this year, but last year I did gather some um, Alexanders, but I never got the project um, done. But the the idea was to to try and get you know, so how much I spent a couple of days harvesting nothing but Alexander stems, prep them, dry them, and then try and turn them into you know like a a flower or just a resource just 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 what kind of bulk could you uh, acquire and what percentage carbohydrate would be in there because mm -hmm. i think i think potentially that's something that's overlooked because um, i have in the book hang on a sec let's see if i can find it um because i did do a calorie analysis of different parts of the plants hang on because I mean, the beauty with that is that a stem will keep on reproducing itself. I think they do get skinnier with with uh, most things, but nevertheless, you can um, you can make the plant work harder. Um, so having you know each 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 hogweed plant having had the stems harvested will will then go on to produce several more before you eventually let it get on with its business and flower. Mm. So that's um, uh, yeah. I would, I would, uh, I think that's almost like a project, really, to to do that with 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 the plants I've mentioned, and perhaps there's some others that I haven't thought of, just to see just how much carbs you could get, bearing in mind that you take it and it grows back, you take it and it grows back. So you're potentially prolonging that that. Um, little window where you can get some carbohydrate from the, from the tender stems. Mm. I have put in, so I, this is, for example, um, some analysis that I did. Um, so this was based on eating a meal of 250 grams of oyster mushrooms, yeah. which is equivalent to a punnet of mushrooms, 150 grams of watercress, and 150 grams of burdock roots. So that was quite, in terms of bulk, you know, that's a reasonably sized plateful. And that is only 231 calories. Yeah. So if you ate that three times a day, you know, and added in some, you know, a, three wild apples as well, you know, that whole, you know, the whole input for that day is 876 calories. If you add 100 grams of meat in, um, of, of venison in, 
you know, you'd you'd increase it by about 450 calories. Yeah. So, but you're still you're still only at um, um, gosh, what's that? You know, plus 450, so eight, nine, ten, 1300 calories. But well, you'd feel pretty full on that let me just um have a look uh if we take something like asparagus let's see what the calorific value of asparagus is 20 calories per 100 grams i'm not used to thinking in these terms so i don't know how impressive that is um let's say carrots then carrots calories okay so cats twice as much as that 41 per 100 grams potatoes calories 77 so yeah so what's your figure on dandelion roots how much has that got per 100 grams um just i'm just trying to find the page so i'm going to give you some examples yeah Dandelion root is 45 calories per 100 grams. Right. But that's no, as good as a carrot. That's as good as a carrot. That's good. That's as good as a carrot. Yeah. Um, except that they are a lot smaller than a carrot. Yeah. So you need to get, you know, so you need to dig up a lot more of them. Um, and mushrooms will range from, you know, 22 calories for field mushrooms per 100 grams to about 33 calories per 100 grams for oyster mushrooms. And um, a burdock root will give you 88 calories per 100 grams. Oh, that's pretty so impressive. It's wow. not. If you think about it, if you look at something like hazelnuts, hazelnuts will give you 628 calories per 100 grams. Sweet chestnuts, 245 calories per 100 grams. Walnuts, 654 calories per 100 grams. Acorn flour, 501 calories per 100 grams. You know, so you've really got to go for the, you know, for the nuts over the roots to give you that sort of input. And by the summer, I'd run out all my nuts. You know, the nuts that I'd stored only lasted till May. I did still have some acorn flour, um, but you know, eating a, a, you know hundred grams of acorn flour is quite a challenge to eat. <laughs> I think we, I just think we haven't cracked how to use it. That's all. I just think, you know, I mean, I've got that fantastic book from the the Greek lady, um, the the acorn cookbook. But I, I still feel we're only just getting started. Um, because it's such a fantastic food. We, we just need some culinary genius applied to it, I think. It's yeah. the combinations, you know, it just, it just needs to be put with some things that it either makes them sing or they make it sing. Um, when I had, you know, I did use a lot of acorns. Um, and a lot of it would be, for instance, when I had egg points, because I wasn't going to take the wild bird's eggs. But when I found a nest, I could have egg points and trade it with my chicken, the chickens that we keep. Can I, can I, just, can I just be cheeky and, and uh, challenge your no wild birds eggs policy? Um, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a legal thing for most of them, but 
but yeah, there's a there's they not, they are legally they are legally protected. But I'm pretty sure pigeons aren't, um, because um, I mean I, I remember meeting a guy that that lived off wild food for, for quite a bit of the year, an Irish fellow who'd grown up in a house that was, you know, they had to eat wild food to to not starve. So he had all kinds of routines of things he always did, but but he. Um, he always ate the duck eggs and um you know he, he knew when they laid because he did he watched them and and uh he knew he knew um he, you know he could he could see the signs that made a nest now and so he knew knew when the eggs were freshly laid and so on and he was adamant as as for chickens that like if you if you, if you take the eggs away they they just they just produce more eggs so you're um, not actually, uh, you know, I know it's controversial and everybody's probably going to beat you up if you publicly say you're still in my books, <laughs> but I, I, I think it's just another of those things that people are a little bit over touchy about, because, uh, if you, um, if you know these, you know, if you know the life cycle of these creatures and how they behave, it's, it's like the, uh, example with the hogweed shoots or the dandelion or whatever it is, you know, you, you're, um, you're just pumping water out of the river of life, really, because you know when you take something, the, the, the system's there to to uh, make sure that it gets replaced, as long as you're doing it um, mindfully, in in a way that you know that, that that's what will happen. So, like you know, you don't take all the eggs and smash the nest up. But anyway, and that that would certainly have worked for our you know Paleolithic ancestors. But, you know, we're seeing massive decline in bird species due to habitat destruction and the use of agricultural chemicals. So I'm not sure that they that that theory would work if, you know, given the pressure that they're already under. Pigeons. Sorry. No, I'm just talking about birds in general, wild birds in general. Yeah. The ones that the ones that are fed by humans, the ones that live off human waste are the ones that are increasing. So, you know, pigeons. Yes, there's plenty of them. Crows and, you know, crows, for instance, have been increasing. Rooks, their vegetarian cousins, are rapidly decreasing. Farmland species are being obliterated. The birds that are really doing well are those that eat peanuts and sunflower seeds. So, yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I hate that. I, I mean, I personally wouldn't, wouldn't put bird food out because the ones that you're supporting by doing that are, are, are taking the nesting sites for the ones that are too shy to come to a bird table or don't like peanuts. Um, but I think there, there are other species, though, that, like the herring gull, unfortunately, is is protected in spite of the fact it's flourishing. And, you know, if you live in a city where there's herring gulls nesting on your roof, it's illegal to touch the nest and definitely illegal to take the eggs. But that's crazy because, yeah, you could you could be eating gulls eggs and um, no one or nothing would be the worse off for it. So, well, yeah. for my you know, my for my own personal decision, what I did was basically, you know, got a table of eggs for the year, looked up when the birds were nesting, how many they'd lay, what size they were, and created a sort of egg point system. So, you know, that worked. But the the point of it was was that you know I could then, you know, with when I had an egg, you know, I could then mix it with acorn flour, um, and <clears throat> and before I ran out of of um, chestnuts, I could put a little bit of chestnut flour or something else in. I very often add some dock seed, you know, or some fat hen seeds or, you know, other seeds to just make the flour go a bit further. 
um, add dried fruit and things <coughs> and make a cake. Um, I also made a lot of sort of flat biscuits just with, you know, water and a little bit of fat and just press them down really hard and bake them quite slowly so that they would hold together. Um, so it was possible to, you know, to use those and to have things that you could sort of snack on. Um, but it was still that, you know, with the amount that I had, it still was, you know, not supplying, um, it, you know, the, the idea that a adult woman needs 2000 calories a day I certainly was not able very often to reach to if at all to reach 2000 calories in a day which either begs the question that I was doing it all wrong or that um but I felt I felt really good on it and really healthy or the fact that calories which is when you burn something to an ash in a sealed chamber it's not really a good way of measuring what our body's needs are because the foods that I was eating are so nutrient dense that I actually wouldn't want to eat more. Yeah. You know, a lot of the time when the calorie, you know, calories might have been, you know, low, so between, you know, 900 and 1,000 calories, um, but I would be full. You know, I wouldn't want second or third helpings just to try to get my calories up because I felt sated, I felt full, I felt happy, I felt full of energy. Um, and and that, you know, the I, I think I had overall better health and more energy apart from you know the days and times you know the, the the brief spells when things were a little bit out of balance so how's it how's it um having got through the year you, you know what i'm sure it must have put put your diet permanently in, in a in a in a bit of a different space isn't it like, what well Yes and no. I mean, because initially what happened was I've been analysing my gut microbiome all throughout this. Mm. And what I decided to do was when I finished the year, I would for three months, I would go back and eat the diet that I was eating before and then do another microbiome test at the end of that three months just to see if the, you know, if my gut would go back to being as it was before, you know, what would happen in that, you know, so I'd done a test right at the very beginning and I wanted to do a test, not just at the end, but three months after to see what was happening. And those results have only just recently come back. So I haven't fully worked out what has been happening there. I just need to find some time to really sort of have a look at it. Um, but the, the thing that did happen was that I immediately started to put some weight on again. And you know what I was eating you know, I've never really eaten processed food but what I was eating then was um vegetable stir fries so I'd normally have a brunch late morning would be a combined breakfast lunch of a you know a lot of stir fried vegetables you know lovely colors big crunchy vegetables um you know carrots beetroots courgette peppers broccoli you know that sort of stuff and then maybe some soup later, and then maybe a little bit of cheese and biscuits or a sort of snack in the evening, and immediately put weight on again. And when I cut the roots, you know, the carrots and the beetroots, when I cut the roots out of the stir fries, that's when that weight gain stopped. All right. All right. Um, and also there was a bit of bread, but not because I make my own bread. There's never bread there every day, but you might, I might make a loaf like once every two weeks or two to three weeks 
Um, so definitely farmed roots and vegetables are, or the lack of protein in my particular, for my particular body type, you know, leads to weight gain. So at the end of that three months, I very obviously having, you know, <laughs> thrown, you know, thrown out to the recycling all my, my larger clothes. Um, and also because we were coming into the, the spring again by this point, has sort of gone back to having a large amount of forage food in my diet. But I do have a tendency to slip away from having a lot of protein. Um, and I do notice the, the difference um, that high protein does make on my body type, um, which is interesting. And so what's the difference? What difference does it make? Kilos. Many oh, yeah. of them. Weight gain again. If you if you if you if you eat more protein, you if I when I eat protein, you know, my weight's my weight stays healthy. Um, when you eat less protein. When I eat less protein, my weight goes up. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry, I got it the wrong way around. So the more protein you eat, okay. The lower my weight. Which is what you'd expect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What I didn't expect because, you know, of course, you know, then you're going into, well, there's been a lot of talk over the years about, you know, paleo diets being really good for you. And so, you know, the question then is, 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 it, is it the paleo diet that's the best? But what's really interesting about the sort of the modern reinterpretation of paleo diet, which sort of comes out of the States, is that there's a big emphasis on fat. And in actual fact, certainly in Scotland, most of the wild animals that we have do not have large amounts of fat. There would have been bears in the past. Yeah, I don't know if we would have killed that many bears. That's quite, they're quite a formidable enemy. Um, and it depends at what stage during the winter, because, you know, if you're hunting in the, you know, the very early part of the winter, animals would still have their fat reserves. But at the end of the winter, particularly if it's a harsh winter, you know, the animals have used up their fat stores. Yeah, no bears in the winter anyway. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, think of like, you know, um, you know, roast, roast goose for Christmas and they're sort of, you know, dripping with fat. But natural fat with wild geese, um, you know, there's not a lot, not a lot of fat on them, not on, not, not on any of the ones I was given, you know, not a lot. Um, so I don't know, you know, maybe in North America where you've got lots of, um, you know, moose or caribou, you know, maybe those animals have a lot more fat on them. I wonder if the guts of the uh, the goose might not have a bit more fat though. Well, there'd be pockets of fat around them. And, you know, I was careful to extract any fat off meat that I was given and render it down. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting with the, 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 the paleo diet thing is, is I mean, it's a bit of a red herring, really, because the idea that there was one diet, uh, number one over a vast period, because paleolithics starts a million years ago, didn't it? Like, you, you, mm. you're talking pre-homo sapien. Um, so that's the first thing. And then secondly, it's, it's, it's habitats all across the globe with completely different foods available. So you, you, the idea that you can reduce a million years worth of diet in every corner of the globe to some simple formula is, is just silly. Um, um, 
you look at the huge variation in, in body types of people as well. Right, yeah. But but you're saying that that, that is, mm, or are you? I mean, you're saying that you would vary based on your genetic heritage, but it's probably, it probably varies within families, though, doesn't it? Which, which you can't put that down to, oh, we came from Malaysia originally or something like that. It is just, it is just variation, right, within the population. People have just different kinds of bodies. Yeah, yeah people have different kinds yeah. of bodies. Yeah. So, you know, Matt, who, who did the, followed the same diet with me, um, you know, he, he lost about six six or eight kilos in in total overall um but then he's you know he's a very tall skinny type to start with you know so it didn't make as much difference and he would actually you know he actually ate more than me helpings wise um right. and but you know he reversed his diabetes within about two and a half right yeah and his heritage you know his um dna heritage is um celtic anglo-saxon and indian as it um, great great grandmother was indian right and it's interesting you know because we you know with all the research into the human gut microbiome you know we're very much compared to um you know people talk about you know the, the hadza microbiome as being the sort of ideal hunter-gatherer microbiome but you know the hadza are you know, people who have evolved in that territory, in that location for a very long time, you know, with a specific, you know, body type. Um, and, you know, they've been, you know, a lot of these, I'm not saying that the Hadza have been in particular, but, you know, with a lot of the currently living um, indigenous ancestral peoples, a lot of them have been pushed to the margins of society. They're living in areas um, and they're still there because those areas were not wanted. They were not seen to be the sort of prime areas for humans to live. So it's very difficult to also say, well, that you know, that would be the, you know, the, the perfect microbiome or the perfect state of health or the perfect diet, because that doesn't necessarily represent it either. I mean, there's, when it comes to archaeology as well, you know, you look at the plant remains of things, I think it wasn't till about six or seven, maybe eight years ago that I read a paper about plant remains that were preserved in bogs, where the authors of the paper put, well, in actual fact, you know, the archaeological record based on seeds and grains of things um, and any starches that are adhering to pots could be completely wrong because, you know, most of the leafy parts of plants are not preserved in that way and then when they were excavating in this sort of bog settlement with these sunken houses that had gone into the fens you know the amount of plant material they found was enormous because it preserved in that sort of environment too so what were they finding oh they were they were finding um many more plant species that weren't otherwise thought of as food you know they, they would find you know green leafy well, I mean, I know fat hen people had realized that because, of course, that has seed as well. But, you know, when you think about it, it's common sense. You know, people would have eaten the foods around them, including all the plants. People yeah. would also eaten things on the go. You wouldn't have brought everything back to camp. Um, I mean, certainly if you look at the um, picking something like, you know, bilberries or wild, wild strawberries, you know, a lot of it would have got eaten on the hillside. Um, partly because of the 
they don't really keep for more than 24 hours, a lot of them. You know, so even if you did painstakingly, you know, make a container and painstakingly bring some back to the camp for people to eat, um, you know, you might have dried some in the sun for later on in the year, but a lot of them would have got eaten very, very quickly because, you know, as you know, if you don't stick stuff in the fridge, it goes moldy very quickly and plant, you know, plant fruits, you know, have all these incredible molds which help them to ferment, you know, great. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm certainly going to do it again at some point. Um, with the, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. So I would certainly do something differently, certainly collect far more nuts. Yeah. Um. I went to Poland in the summer for a, you know, field trip. And of course there, you know, everybody's got sacks and sacks of walnuts in the attic. So even in the middle of summer, you still had, you know, walnuts that you could, you know, fall back on as a go-to snack or something to keep you going until you got to your next meal. And, um, you know, it was really good for sort of grinding up with some dried fruit and, you know, to make sort of protein high energy bars and things like that and would also give you you know more of a source of proteins than just the leafy things yeah so to be vegetarian you could certainly be vegetarian um on a wild food diet if you included um herding of sheep and cows if you had some dairy um and certainly if you took you know eggs um for in the spring I think it would be very challenging to be vegan. You could probably do it at certain times of the year, um, part of the spring possibly, and, and certainly in the autumn with mushrooms and berries, and, but it would be very, very challenging. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, because it, <clears throat> it, it depends on uh, under what circumstances you're thinking of doing these things, because, um, you know, there are, sort of byproducts of agriculture that um, do produce some bulk. Like, you know, I have a friend that um, farms, well, it's not really organically, but it, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's, it's more radical than organic because, you know, he doesn't plough and whatnot. But, he, but the, the point is when he harvests, all the weed crops, he's, he's got a piece of kit that will separate out all the seeds. So he ends up with loads of vetch, little beans, they're like little mung beans, little vetch seeds. Mm. He ends up with uh, piles of um, uh, brome, brome grass seed. Um, um, and there's even this, what is it, is it black grass? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a terrible, it's the bane of farmers' lives now because it's immune to glycosate and, and whatnot. I don't know that anyone's actually tried using it for food, but um, there's certainly a lot of it. Well, a lot of the bromes, a lot of the bromes were certainly used. I mean, you know, another common misconception that people have is that um, you know, we, you know, wheat is bad because we've, you know, we've only been using it since we started farming, and our bodies aren't really adapted to it. But in actual fact human species were using a wide variety of 
grain from both wild grasses and wild wheats and wild barleys 750,000 years ago. Yeah. yeah. 750,000 years ago. Because they found, um, I think it's mainly in Israel and certainly in Greece and Franchi caves, they found these, you know, um, stone pestle and mortars, you yeah. know, with the grains and grass grains and wheat grains and things in them that, car- you know, that carbon date or however they date it going back 750,000 years. And I would have made a lot more use of the grass grains up here and was all set, you know, I'd left parts of, you know, earmarked parts of meadows and things. Um, and even around where, you know, where I have got the ability to sort of scythe or control the environment a bit, you know, didn't do anything, left it all natural so that there would be lots and lots of grass grains. But we have a big problem in Scotland and that's ergo. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the first, you know, as soon as everything was ready to harvest, you know, everywhere there was, I, I don't know whether it was just that particular summer, although I do see Ergo regularly every year. But that, that summer in particular, there was a lot of Ergo. You know, you can find, you know, inspected group of grasses and there would be these, this little black witch's finger yeah. poking, reminding you of... <laughs> reminding you not to eat it yeah a huge disappointment yeah i mean because we have perfect summers for fungi up here you know damp damp rainy and warm and humid you know which is you know wonderful for chanterelles and porcinis and and obviously ergo as well (laughs) yeah i wonder if it's the fruiting body that's the um the dangerous bit and um, whether there's the toxin is what I mean to say is is there a way yeah, to toxin more concentrated in the fruiting body so if you're able to separate them all is it okay still to eat the grasses that haven't fruited because there's lower amount of toxins in the mycelium yeah um, I wasn't able to find any reassuring research at the time so yeah. you know, did lots of them because I suspect it all just got mixed up in the in the cases in the past where the poisoning happened. Um, they um, they would have just ground the whole thing up and then sieved the flour to get the husk out or, or whatever the process, um, which meant that the fruiting bodies would have been part of the flour. Whereas if, if there's a way of knocking them out, that could be that could be the way for people to eat wild grass in the, in Scotland. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I, I then said, you'd had to hand separate, you know, you'd have to hand separate and inspect, you know, every head, which mm. would be a consuming process. Well, I, th- I think for, for te- it depends, but, but, but I know yeah, you're but using for other plants like um, pendulous sedge, for instance, yeah. was great. I've never seen ergo on pendulous sedge. So it's just choosing the species. And I mean, certainly in um, Eastern um, or Western and Western Europe during the medieval times when ergotamine poisoning was a, was a big issue, I think it was predominantly rye that was infected. Yeah, yeah. Which, which as I say, as far as I'm aware, they didn't de-husk the rye, they just blitzed the whole thing and, and, and then the husk would be removed by a, a sort of sieving process, which is why the fruiting body would have gone in there. Um, into the flour and you wouldn't because have noticed when you're trying to produce something for you know mass storage or mass consumption yeah. so that you can eat it in any volume you know mechanical methods do tend to come into play yeah yeah 
But I mean, if you think about the, uh, it, it, it isn't it isn't just that like damp conditions um, are no no because of ergot because of course you've got the Glycera plutans, the the uh, the floating sweetgrass or manna grass, which whilst it does seem to have been like it's 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 sort of bulk harvest does seem to have been for a luxury market. Um, nevertheless, there was a bulk harvest of it, and that's a plant that's growing in damp ground. So presumably is is not vulnerable to ergot. Um, yeah, I wonder what the Scottish thing for for that is. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, certainly humans are ingenious, and we've learned to make safe a lot of dangerous, you know, foods. Yeah, um, and that's you know our ability to eat almost anything has been, you know, one of the reasons behind this sort of prolific spread around the globe. Yeah, uh, the, exactly. the, the success as a species in in reproducing. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a whole different debate on whether or not that's actually been good for the planet or not. But well, I don't um, know. Well, you know, I think about that. I think I think um, I think a resounding yes. But like the the, the issue is industrialization. Like, it's, I mean, there's now there's now um, the big the, ones always. Now also the the fact that we do not have, um, you know, an, a more equitable sharing of resources. Right, but I think that's just that's just another product of industrialization. You know, so uh, you know, um, well, it starts with farming, which gives rise to hierarchies and and um, standing armies and, and and whatnot, and then. For some reason, we wait ten thousand years, and 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 the eighteenth century in England, <laughs> for some reason, is the spawning ground for the latest upgrade in how to be uh, a total asshole as a species. You know, um, and and yeah, off we go with with new improved tools of domination and uh, exploitation, and you know, we we lose all the rest of the empathy that we had left for each other and other species. So, so you know, I don't know why, I don't know why the first step happened and why the second step happened. But, but the point is, that's not who we are. It's an, it's, it's a, it's a direction we have as a potential to go in. But at most times, in most places, since human beings have been around, we've been rather nice with regard to all the other species. And had quite an equitable way of relating to each other. I, I just think, mm. I mean, one of the things I find really interesting, because because I've always I've always thought, no, I'm going to wait for further information, and a yet to come second opinion on this matter. What people always say is, oh yeah, well, whatever you say about how indigenous people um, live with a nice balance between themselves and, and the landscape on the whole, uh, what about the megafauna? So that just proves that we've always been rotten to the core that we'll just go in there and kill all these big animals because it's lots of free easy meat and we don't care we'll just keep killing them till there's none left but that is finally being seriously questioned people are finally revisiting that one with some some good data about you know climate change uh, consequent ecosystem change that coincides with the arrival of people and so on so that we are probably not guilty as charged um which means that what we what we have as as you know data about um 
how hunter-gatherers live now, those that are left and, and, and those that there's, there's data on how they were before colonization, that they do tread lightly and are very reverent towards the other species in the land. Um, yeah, so megafauna is no longer the big counter argument to that, which is, yeah, as I say, I've always, I've always suspected that was the case. Um, but I mean, I suppose the point is where we're um, tinkering away with this ongoing uh, live research project of how can modern humans, you know, base their diet to a greater or lesser extent on the wild foods. It well, has one, to be, yeah, we're, well, it has to be that we're, we're kind of edging our way back in that direction um, to live as proper citizens of the, of, the, of the planet amongst all the other, other species, citizens of the planet. You were mentioning earlier your friend who does organic farming and then separates the seeds out and the, the amount of veg seeds that he has. You know, this is another thing where you know, when you start to look at the controversy about whether or not, you know, a lot of people are taught vetches are poisonous and that you shouldn't eat the, the seeds and they've got um, cannabinine or I can't remember which of the chemicals it is offhand. Um, there's lathyrism and um, farvism that come out of eating peas, beans and vetches. Um, lathyrism, I think, with the vetches. And, you know, but people have actually eaten wild vetch seeds for a very very long time but they have to be soaked before yeah. they and I think a lot of the um, poisonings that have happened in the past have been in areas where there's also been famine well exactly uh, if you eat nothing but one thing well no it's not that I think it's just that you know if you've got a you know if you're in sub-saharan Af Africa and there's a famine it also means there's a shortage of water and if you're having to walk miles and miles and miles to get water and water has become a very precious resource, you don't then use lots and lots of it to soak and flush and throw away the water from having soaked your beans. Right. And that is probably where a lot of the problems have come from, um, is that they have then been incorrectly prepared due to the other pressures caused by famine. Um, and there's obviously very little research as to, well, exactly what are the exact cooking instructions um, to eat vetch seeds safely in large quantities without their, you know, where, which is backed up by research, which says, yes, at this point, after X hours of soaking in X amount of water, you're not going to poison yourself. You know, so most most people will say, you know, oh, I've, I've, I've read, I've been taught, I've been read that the vetches are you know, they'll be nervous of eating, you know, even eating some of the, you know, the vet shoots in a, in a salad instead of, sort of, you know, almost like, a, you know, pea shoots, which, of course, are delicious. Or I've heard you can eat the, the vetches, but you shouldn't eat the pods like monge too. Um, you know, so there's a lot of suspicion because of a lack of science, because we went down the route of just specialising in a few species. Yeah, but even then we're eating, we're eating pulses like kidney beans which we just accept they need soaking and boiling and, and what yeah miles a lot of people don't know that you have to you know they buy their kidney beans pre-put cooked in tins and sealed mm. boxes mm. um tetra pack type boxes a lot of people don't know 
that you, what to do with a dried bean these days. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I... at the end of the day, what it boils down to is that at one stage, I mean, certainly, I think it's over 1,700 different species have been documented as, you know, in regular food use amongst humans. But nowadays, 50% of the daily calorie intake comes from three species, wheat, corn and rice, and they're all winter foods. And I think only, you know, 12 species comprise, comprise 80% of everybody's daily diet, you know, yeah. which is, and I mean, I think if, if people ate 36 species of fruit and vegetables from going to their local supermarkets and things, you know, that would probably be quite high, but that's nowhere near the amount we would have eaten. I mean, one thing I was very careful to do in the year that passed uh, was I didn't go and pick stuff and just to name check it in the species table. You know, so there were a lot more species I probably could have eaten. But if I was just sort of tasting a couple of leaves and not making a meal out of it, it didn't get included. Um, and, you know, I ate 300 species of plants, 87 species of fungi, 20 species of seaweed and could have eaten even more variety if I if I was going through an exercise of seeing how many different things I could eat. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, so that means there's a very, very different, um, you know, nutrient, you know, nutrient balance going on, not of the, you know, the major vitamins and minerals that we know about and have been labeled, but of all the micronutrients, you know, and there's the, the, the small phytochemicals that make things up. Yeah. Plants, plants are not just, you know, um, carbohydrate, sugar, starch, protein, fat and vitamins and minerals. You know, turmeric, when they analysed it, had, over, I think, over 900 different phytochemicals in it. And there's no reason why, you know, why most other species wouldn't have hundreds of different phytochemicals in them. Well, especially the wild ones, which have not been selectively bred so that certain compounds, e.g., Water and sugar predominate, and and and, and deliberately saying let's let's breed it to be less bitter, less intense, less hairy, less whatever. Um, so yeah, we're we're opening a, a Pandora's box of wonderful things. I think is that whenever we eat a wild plant, because you just don't know what's in it, and and uh, and um, how that's going to interact with the marvelous complexity of your own substance, you know. Uh, um, and then fiber, of course, you know, is, is, is totally different as well. Um, I mean, when the plants weren't there during the winter, um, sometimes the fiber wasn't enough. And I noticed my whole metabolism really slowing down. My gut metabolism really, really slowing down. But then, you know, as you came out of that, the amount of fiber in the plants and things, you know, it made a huge difference. And that was, you know, that triggered this explosion of, bacterial species in the microbiome at different points. I mean, certainly there's one root that I would love to have been able to eat more of because it's really prolific up here. And that's tuberous comfrey. Right. You know, it's high, it's very prolific. It's got very attractive, thick, crunchy tubers that right. are full of starches and things like that. Um, when you look at the pyrrolizidine alkaloids that everybody gets nervous about with comfrey, it's actually the species with the lowest levels, almost negligible levels of the dangerous pyrrolidazine alkaloids. 
Um, and I would, you know, I could have eaten lots of it every single day. It was there together, but it's got more inulin in it than a Jerusalem artichoke. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't just a question of trying to be sociable with other humans. Does it make you fart so much? If you meet, yeah, if you eat too much of it, you you will end up with you know stomach cramps as well from all the, the intestinal gas it produces. You know, so obviously a lot of I mean, an inulin, as we know, is a real feeder of gut microflora. And as I sort of, but as I came into the spring, some of these gut microflora, you know, exploded. They increased by sort of 600, 800%, things like oxalobacters, which digest oxalates when the sorrels and the young dock and things came in. Yeah, yeah. Can, we, can we stop and talk about that one? Because here's, here's, here's another thing that, that people get very agitated about and make a dreadful fuss about oxalic acid that <clears throat> apparently it's, it's going to cause all kinds of huge and horrendous damage. But that's with no knowledge of the fact that, as you say, if you eat things with oxalic acid, then you just cultivate a bacteria that um, that eats it. So, job done. Assuming you have an intact, assuming you have an intact reference library of bacteria in your gut in the first place, they do think now, I mean, I was always brought up being told that your appendix was completely useless. And sometimes it would get infected, like if you bit your nails or something, bits of nails would get in there and it would start to swell up, get infected. And one of my brothers had to have his out. I remember the emergency operation. But now they, they actually think that possibly the appendix is a reservoir of microbes. And there's also the beginnings of discussion about ancestral microbes. So it's totally possible that if you haven't had massive antibiotic use in your life, and you still have your appendix, that possibly your appendix, you know, this is theory, that possibly your appendix is a store of microbes that aren't necessarily used in your gut every day, but are just waiting to, um, you know, to come out when the food changes, when, it, when the food sources change. You know, that guts are supposed to be incredibly responsive. But don't you think that, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it likely that if you're eating sorrel or wood sorrel or whatever, that, that, that they have that bacteria? It makes sense to me that a, a bacteria that digests oxalic acid should hang around the plants that have oxalic acid. It'd be worth looking into, wouldn't it? It would, be, it would be worth looking into, but I don't think anybody's ever started to analyse, you know, what are the microbes in the rhizobiome of wood sorrel or common sorrel you know that that sort of research just isn't being done you know and that assumes that the bacteria what will you know are feeding on those plants and breaking it down um and not actually trying to promote the plant you know so yeah well, that, yeah isn't it, but isn't it the same isn't it the same as us that isn't it the case that we have bacteria on our skin who will patiently wait for us to die because they're the ones that are going to digest us when we die i mean i I, I, I would have thought that that's the case with the plant. That leaf is eventually going to decay and there's the thing waiting for the feast. So, yeah. It, I mean, that's certainly a logical chain of thought, but we just don't know. 
Yes, yes, yes. Well, we just need... We somebody, need... If you get somebody who was born by cesarean section, who started off with a microbial disadvantage from birth, and then had lots and lots of antibiotics as a, as a child for repeated whooping cough or ear infections, or, you know, which a lot of children do, especially those born, who were born by cesarean. And then on top of that, they've had their appendix out, you know, then it is, they may well not be able to produce, you know, to respond in the same way that my gut did to sudden high amounts of, of material with oxalates in them. But, you know, I, I did, I wasn't born by cesarean. I had a very robust childhood. I've had, had very few antibiotics in life, never for long periods. And I still have my appendix. And certainly when we moved from the winter into the spring, my oxalobacter went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so it all, I mean, it all raises so many more questions than provides answers, really. Yeah, well, I think we do need the uh, World Health Organization and the World Food Programme and, you know, several billionaires and so on just to put money behind this very important question, you know, how are we going to eat if we're not going to be industrial anymore? We're going to give up this bad pattern of life and have to figure out another way of being here since there are rather a lot of us now. How do we do it? I mean, um, you know, I'm personally dreaming more and more. To me, the, 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 the thing that we all run up against Okay, so what you're saying then, you know, 60 million people in the UK can't all eat wild food, blah, blah, blah. You know. Um, Sudden shortage of ground elder. What's that? Sudden shortage of ground elder. Ground right. elder. But here's the thing, just going back to what I said earlier about the, you know, sticking your cup in the river of life and drawing the water forth, you know. If we cut that ground elder, what's going to happen? It's going to grow back. And if we do that again, what's going to happen? It's going to grow back. And if we do that again, what's going to happen? So, you know, we're just standing there doing a magic trick. Abracadabra, there is now eight, nine, ten times as much ground elder coming from that piece of land this year compared to last year. What was my magic trick? I ate it repeatedly. I mean, that's, you know, no one's considering that when they're saying, like, could we all, well, Okay, well, maybe we take in turns then, like, to begin with. I have this harvest, you have the next one. But, of course, what's going to happen next is, is we're just going to start devoting more land to it. And the, the picture I've got is, is for us to start using the, the um, redundant surface areas that we've got, which is, of course, the inside and outside of buildings. So all those walls and that ceiling behind you, why isn't it covered in plants? There's got to be a way of doing it. All the outside of the buildings, every surface area, every roof, every wall could be uh, a growing medium for wild plants. Well, yeah, certainly in the areas that we're choosing to, to entirely pave with concrete and tarmac and steel as we, you know, in our mission to pave the, the globe, but, you know, you, you, you don't, 
I mean, any of the margins, you know, any of the areas of disruption where, you know, where pavement meets edge, where, you know, where the forest meets the, the clearing, where, they, where the field margins are, the hedgerows, you know, are all, you know, disrupted areas where plants can get a foothold and, you know, and, and, and are abundant and prolific. You know, in the, middle of a, in the middle of a prairie or in the middle of a forest, you don't often get new introductions because the established colonies of the grasses and their thick matter roots or, you know, the density of the trees will keep other species out. But it's those margins where, you know, and I find that really interesting because, you know, as foragers, we, a lot of us, we are kind of like living on the margins of society. We are, you know, very often, you know, people a little bit on the edge, you know, very often people on the spectrum who haven't settled down to living inside concrete boxes and, you know, operating computers for long periods of times and things like that. And it's the plants that feed us the most, that are the plants that have massive diversity and grow in the margins. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And if we stop paving everything and polluting everything, they will grow. Mm. Mm. I mean, I was, I was in London recently and I walked from Victoria Station to the East End. And once you've sort of passed Victoria Station, there's a bit where they've sort of redone roads and things like that. And it was just like walking through a completely concrete tunnel mm. of, you know, of buildings and pavement and road. And there was not, there was nothing green in sight. And I, and I, but I knew, I knew, and I looked and I looked and eventually I found that tiny little crack in the pavement you know, by a, by a column where a little bit of water must have dribbled down the outside of that building. And there was some hairy bitter grass. Yeah. You know. And why we needed that, you know, why do we need to just plant, you know, have plant trees in tiny little holes with these tight collars that are around them? Um, I mean, I think of um, Pat who did um, Edible Todmorden and started the Edible City movement and things. Um, you know, it's perfectly possible for us to coexist with, you know, with plants and they are, you know, they're so generous, but, and without them, there would be no food on this planet because they're the only ones who know how to make food out of sunlight. Yeah. 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 Well, and the crazy thing is we've got, we've got this big issue at the moment of too much CO2 in the air. Um, we just need more plants. So that's, you know, yeah. we, need, we, need, we need plants to eat, but we also need plants to suck carbon out of the air. And, um, and when, once I, you know, and going through London, you know, I did sometimes see offices where inside the foyer would be a sort of wall garden of plants, right. you know, and, but as you walked out, you know, there might be a couple in pots, but there'd be huge swathes of massive concrete steps and massive concrete walkways. Yeah. You know, it's like we're making little, you know, vertical farming is like making little plant zoos. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think the thing, the thing that we've yet to have is, is creating, um, a, a way of suspending on a wall what is what is a, a growth medium that can allow a wild ecosystem to develop 
which, which would then, you know, some of that would consist of wild plants and, and then it would be habitat for insects and birds and, and goodness knows, you know, that's, that's yeah. the idea that buildings could be um, habitats and, and there's, there's a vast surface area made up by the... Uh, it is, but, you know, do, do that, will they have the same mycelial connections? Well, I think that's what we've got to experiment with. We've got to experiment with with making actually a living culture there, not not just sticking some, you know, sterile growth medium that will allow begonias or whatever it is, you know, you might put up there as an ornamental, but but actually, you know, um, I think that's the work that's that's yet to be done is to is to say, you know, how how do we turn to me, it's like turning the city into the forest, you know, instead of saying, oh, let's leave the city. Going down routes, which, you know, which require a huge amount of work looking into how do we get mycelia to connect with them all? You know, how do we, how do we feed them, you know, fresh, fresh unchlorinated water? How do we feed them organic food? Why don't we just actually look at the landscapes we already have within cities? and let you know work with nature instead of against it work with nature instead of trying to corral her you know to suit our you know paving and building needs yeah you do see you see you know um vacant you know vacant lots that are taken over by guerrilla gardeners you see some really in the cities you see some really interesting allotment communities and I think under law, does not everybody who lives in the city have a right, have a fundamental right to an allotment? Nobody gets them all. Mm. But if you had much more of a, a movement to actually take back the, you know, the spaces that are concretized. Yeah, I mean, anyway. I, I just, I, I think, I think my eye is on the, on the prize of, you know, a serious reworking of our um, civilization, based you know, based on these big players getting on board. You know, I could be naive, but um, I just think if um, oh, I don't think they're naive, and I think that the big players will get on board with industrial scale solutions. Well, no, this is what I mean. If if we, what we, what we yeah, but no, the the onus is on us to win the argument that that, that the industrial thing is the kiss of death. You know, because that is the truth. Every 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 scaling up of of um, you know technology for technology's sake, rather than technology being harnessed for the good, right? So it's not that the technology is bad. The, 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 the industrial revolution could have been amazing, and the current tech revolution is amazing in terms of how we've been able to disseminate information across the globe. That is amazing. Um, but mostly that is not harnessed for the good. It is mostly harnessed for profit. And money is another technology that is harnessed for, for um, you know, yeah, for, for greed and not, and not for good. So, um, you know, I think we have to win the argument. That, yeah, but, that, but creating, creating, creating vertical farms of micro salads is no more diverse than a battery, you know, battery farming conifer trees for Christmas trees, you know? No, but that's, yeah, you know, what we, need, what we need is ways that actually respect the diversity, you know, not, very, very few habitats in nature come to be just dominated by one 
species if they've not been interfered with by humans. Yeah, but that's the, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the vertical gardening thing for for, for the for the monoculture. I'm I'm talking about um, us using our creativity to, uh, to 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 give over something which is mostly kind of sterile and devoid of life, i.e., the outside of buildings, and turning that into something that is as glorious as as a meadow or a forest. I, why not? Why not? You know, we, we, we have to have more um, carbon taken out of the, out of the atmosphere. Um, and we have to have, to me, wild food available for, for, the, for the masses, you know. So there's, that, that, that's, um, that's a way to do that. And then the third benefit is, um, is that it's habitat, you know, so. Yeah. And in Britain, you know, we just don't know what's under our noses. It's quite ironic because, you know, the British people think of themselves as a nation of nature lovers. But in actual fact, when you look at surveys of countries where, you know, nature is considered to be high on the agenda, we're actually one of the worst when it comes to actually engaging with nature and getting out there and doing things. You know, we're a nation of nature, you know, armchair. It's voyeurism. It's voyeurism. That's what it is. We're we're just. um... And I mean, the amount of I mean, you know, most school children nowadays can tell you more about the the Amazon rainforest than, you know, than they could about, you know, the the field behind their house. Um, And I mean, the amount of I mean, how many adults in Britain know that there's actually rainforest in Scotland? There is designated, you know, world-class designated rainforest in Scotland. The um, the West Atlantic, you know, it's a very very special rainforest ecosystem. But you know, it hasn't been on telly as much. <laughs> anyway, we're not going to solve all the problems of the world today, Miles. Well, no, but we've got a little nugget that. Uh... If everybody nibbles on it, we'll be edging our way in the right direction. Yeah. And I think if I was if I was to say one, you know, just give sort of maybe sort of one olive branch to people sort of um, winding up, it would be that, you know, just get outside and add one wild thing to your diet every day. Just one wild thing to your diet every day. Because if you are what you eat and what you're eating is wild, what happens? Yeah, you get wilder. And then who knows? Yeah. All right, Monica. Well, congratulations on the book. And uh, may it do what it's um, there to do and get lots of people out there foraging um, and back in their local ecosystem yeah it's always lovely talking to you miles always gives me lots of food for thought and cool yeah likewise so we're talking the wilderness cure everybody wilderness cure by mo wilds all right well great talk to you and you you soon bye